Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Coming up. And then he tried to give me this little ointment to take in my drink. An ointment? Yeah, he said if I drink this, then eventually I'd be cured. With hindsight, I kind of wish I'd got it now. I sampled it, see what it was. Maybe Maybe it was poppers. Could have been poppers, babe. A Gay and a Non-Gay is a podcast from James Barr and Dan Hudson. Two unlikely friends take on the world. Hello, welcome to A Gay and a Non-Gay. I'm Dan Hudson, I'm not gay. I'm James Barr and I am gay. I'm so happy to welcome our guest today, barrister, author. According to Gay Times, he's one of the 10 South Asians that you need to know about. His book, A Dutiful Boy, A Memoir of a Gay Muslim's Journey to Acceptance, is definitely one to give to a friend this Christmas. As the title suggests, it's a life-affirming read and you're going to get a lot out of this episode. Mossin Zeddy is on the show today. Mossin, how are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. I'm also gay and I... I also think that there are probably more than 10 South Asians you find. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to a gay and a non-gay. We both love your book and obviously it made me cry a lot. I don't know so much about Dan. Did you shed a tear? Yeah, uh, ish. I'll tell you when I nearly did, uh, Mossin, and it's this this line here about uh, your family. The thing about superheroes is that they have a weakness. If they were invincible, there would be no point. What made them so special was that they found a way to overcome their kryptonite, not that they didn't have it in the first place. What a line. What a line. You know, I, growing up, one of the things that I write about earlier is my love of Superman. I, I think I've always been kind of obsessed with superheroes, I guess on some level, because when you grow up as the other, you do your best to try and be one. Right, because superheroes are these people who are, they're different in some way and they are ostracized and closed off from everybody else. I mean, that's kind of part of the narrative, but you feel different. And so I really tried to work hard to be the best version of myself because of it. And so I became obsessed with this idea of what it means to be a good person and what, what, what does it mean to be superhuman? And I think it's so easy for us to assume that that's perfection all the time. And then when I was thinking about my parents and, and actually that line, speaks to the story right if the story had been i came out to my mum and dad and they threw me a party you know there would the book would have been about two chapters long and nobody <laughs> really cared the beauty in the story lies in the struggle that my parents had but were able to overcome because of the love of their child i mean i often say to the extent that there are any heroes in the book it's them was it hard to convey the opinions and the points of view of your family without accidentally or, or deliberately painting them as like horrible people, which obviously they're not. And that really comes across in yeah. the book that they're not. But was that a hard balance for you to strike? When my mum finished reading the first draft, she said, oh, I've actually come out all right. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I probably did OK. I was mindful throughout that I was subjecting my family to quite a lot of scrutiny potentially through writing about our story. And I do think it's our story, it's not just mine. So I was mindful of that. And don't get me wrong, there were moments where I felt really angry with my family. And I, I did write about those, but the thing is it was really important for me to be able to show 
how hard it was for them as well. And I think that whenever we talk about the difficulties that can present themselves when you're a person of colour or a person of faith or both and you're grappling with sexuality, so often we focus on the individual, but we forget that if I had a problem with my sexuality, then they would too. But I had an incentive to get over it. They didn't necessarily have that incentive. And so I was trying to demonstrate a bit of empathy with the process that they were going through. And so it was really important to me to balance my own anger with helping the reader understand what they were going through and what they were thinking. Is it an uncle of yours at one point says, when you're discussing gay marriage in the news, um, says gay people should be shot. That's obviously quite a big thing to write, but like they were okay with it being in the book. (laughs) So I guess there's a few things to say. The first thing to say is that I grew up in the late 80s when the country was steeped in homophobia. I think it's interesting because, and I'm, I'm not saying you guys have done this, but often when I'm interviewed, People are like, oh my God, what was it like growing up in a homophobic Muslim family? And I was like, well, in the 80s, the Tory government introduced Section 28. Right, <laughs> the whole country, yeah. And, and you had the AIDS crisis raging for which we were blamed. So before you get on this kind of racist high horse where, oh, you you come from this brown family where there was homophobia, there was no utopia going on outside. But to go to your question, that was a difficult one. That was a complicated conversation to have. I write quite openly about being a teenager and being driving through Finsbury Park with my dad. And Finsbury Park is where London Pride used to be. And writing about how my self-loathing manifested itself as me saying they should all be bombed. And the reason that it was really important for me to write that was because towards the end of the book, what you hear is I am a director of Pride in London. I'm not anymore, but I used to be. And so I've gone from being this teenager that was so angry with the world and hated myself so much that I could say something as violent as that to being one of the gays that ran it. So I felt like it was important to demonstrate how hard it was personally, but also to to demonstrate the homophobia that was going on around me, both in the family, but also in society. So you came out to your parents and then there's still this stumbling block you've got to go through of uh, introducing your parents to your boyfriend. When that happened, you were quite angry rather than relieved and just wondered why that was i was angry because it shouldn't have been that way because to get to a point where you are introducing your loved one to somebody else and for it to have felt like such a struggle to have climbed this huge mountain to get to this point i was angry because i was tired i was angry because i was anxious i was angry because there was a part of me that was still ashamed So instead of just being excited about this person that I love that exists in my heart, meeting these other two people that I love that exist in my heart, I was petrified. And that feeling of not being able to just enjoy one of the most momentous moments of your life made me angry. But it also made me angry on behalf of other people because I thought, I'm so lucky that my parents are actually able to do this, right? Because so many queer people around the world, whether you're queer Muslim or not, don't get that. And so I was angry for them too, because yeah, okay, I'm spoiled. I get to do this. I mean, the majority of queer people don't. And yet it's just not the way it should be. So my feelings about it were mixed and it was complicated because of all of those reasons. A gay and a non-gay. What do you think would have happened if you hadn't had the courage to come out and you just carried on as you were? You know, it's funny. I, I, one of the things I write about is this sliding doors moment of having to come to terms with the fact that I was going to leave this quote unquote straight life behind and, and uh, embrace my sexuality. Not anymore, but I used to wonder what that would look like. And I think that ultimately I would have been deeply unhappy. But more to the point, I think I would have subjected a woman that I would have married to a life of misery. And the way I describe it in the book is that if I had married somebody else, they would have become a prop in my own game. And I think that, fine, telling lies and keeping secrets is one thing, but dragging somebody else into it in such a 
deceitful way and ruining potentially ruining their lives in the process i just couldn't do that yeah that's one of the things i found so gripping it's just like you're constantly battling with this idea that actually you would ruin someone else's life by also pretending and ruining your own and it's yeah it's it's heavy isn't it so was it difficult to write this and why did you decide to just jump in and write this story what what triggered that moment it was difficult to write in parts so for example i write about my house being petrol bombed in a racist attack when i was when I was 18 and witnessing it and having to get my mum and my brother, my baby brother out of the house. And that was hard because I think collectively we had repressed the memory of it as a family. We, we very shortly after petrol bombing happened, we moved out of the house. We never really spoke about it again. And having to dig up that stuff and be reminded of the violence, the literal violence that racism can inflict upon you was quite difficult. I just thought back about like the way that my mum and dad sought to protect us they thought the best thing they could do was to, to almost pretend it hadn't happened. And that made me sad for them and also sad for us as young people of color raised in a society that has racism embedded at its roots. So that was hard, but actually there were other moments of real lightness. And I you know, wrote with pride about the love that my parents had displayed and was also able to like look back with humor, right? Like, you know, I, when I got to university, I had all of Mariah Carey's discography on my shelf. <laughs> yes. And yet somehow there was still some debate about whether I was gay or not. <laughs> you know, it was a mixture of things. And that was really important to me in writing was to be able to demonstrate the lightness in this, because I think it's easy to come at it and assume it's a really heavy story. And I don't think it is. In the book, you say that you'd assumed experience as a minority would make a person sympathetic to another minority. But often that that isn't actually the case. I wonder why you think that might be. It's a combination of things. One is if you haven't lived the experience of another person. So, for example, I, I have lived as a man and I have the privileges that come with being a man. So I don't understand always what it means to carry yourself as a woman in the world. Women can't even walk home without being worried about being accosted by a police officer, like the very people we're meant to trust. So I think that's part of it is if you don't understand it, then sometimes it's difficult to have the empathy. And that's where I think allyship and leaning in and trying to understand it becomes important. But the other part is when you have a way in which you are different. So if you are gay and you have had to fight some oppression or some sense of otherness, I think particularly amongst gay men, I have to say, there feels like there's a license to almost be less considerate of other difference because you think, okay, well, I've been through it. So, you know, it must be the same or actually it doesn't matter that it's different because I've had to deal with my own battles. So I think it's those two things. It's a lack of understanding and then feeling like you have a license to perhaps not need to to be as understanding because of your own struggles. Yeah, I relate to that a lot. And I definitely am guilty of, of the latter part of that. And I, I wonder why and, and whether that is a specific man thing, a male thing, or whether there are lesbians that are also like that. Uh, I mean, I don't think it's limited to men. Look, I, I'm not perfect. And I've definitely been on a journey when it comes to learning about diversity and issues as well. But I, I've had conversations with prominent lesbian women who've told me that the decriminalization of homosexual homosexuality around the world is a gay issue, a male issue. And then I've had to be the one to educate them on the fact that, well, actually, there are places like Iran where corrective rape of women is, is a thing. And that's opened their eyes. So I don't think that it's limited to just men. A gay and a non-gay. You're very vocal 
like we are about banning conversion therapy and how important that ban yeah. in the UK is. And there's this obvious nonsense consultation going on right now, which is not needed. But could you tell us about your experience with the witch doctor that tried <laughs> to convert you? Yeah, so I came home a week after telling my dad and there was a guy in the living room. My dad said, this person wants to speak to you. And he suggested we went for a walk. So we're walking around the woods near my house and he says, your dad has told me what you told him, but I want you to tell me yourself. So eventually I said, look, I'm gay. And he said, who told you that you're gay? He said, nobody, nobody told me. I just am. And he went, how do you know? And I was like, well, I could give you the details, but I'm not <laughs> sure you want to hear them. So then we went round and round with him saying that he could cure me and that he'd helped all these other people. And it made me really angry because it just made me think that he was exploiting the vulnerability of these families and these desperate people. And if I hadn't been, you know, in my late 20s and about to become a lawyer and understood logic and reason and how to argue with somebody, I think I would have been a lot more vulnerable. And so eventually I just said to him, well, are you gay? You keep talking to me about the fact that you've cured all these people. Are you gay? He's like, no, how dare you even suggest such a thing? And I was like, okay, so you have no idea, do you? You've got no idea whether these people are lying to you just because they want their families not to kick them out of the house. And he said I, that I was the most stubborn person he'd ever met. And I was quite proud of that. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> and then he tried to give me this little ointment to take in my drink. An ointment? Yeah, he said, if I, if I drink this, then eventually I'd be cured. And I was really worried it was like chemical castration, so I didn't take it. Whoa. Did you ever find out yeah. what it was? No, and actually, with hindsight, I kind of wish I'd got it now. I sampled it, see what it see what Maybe it was. Maybe it was poppers. Could have been poppers, babe. Yeah, or, or just an actual cure. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> I guess we'll, I guess we'll never know. If that had happened when you were younger, do you think it would have been different? Absolutely, I would have downed the whole thing. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I write about searching for an exorcism because at one point I thought I was possessed by the devil. Ah, mmm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice at Caskers.com. We make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. And... I remember the first time I told one of my close friends, Alicia, who was a wonderful human being, I told her that. And the reason I told her was because she wanted to go and see a horror film. And I hate, I can't watch horror films. And she said, oh, come on, why do you hate them so much? And I said, oh, because when I was growing up, I thought I was possessed. So I, I just can't watch them. She started crying. And her reaction was the first time that it hit me that no child should have to feel that way. And it makes me angry thinking about now because I know that there are still children out there today who feel that way. And I think that one of the reasons it's so important to have written this book, and I thank you for bringing me on this show, is because the more opportunities I can have to say that children should not be feeling this way, the better. On that note, I assume that you're across the situation in Birmingham with the, the schools and the No Outsiders programme and the protest. Yeah. What's been your reaction to that? I mean, fundamentally, the sad thing for me is that you have, I, I don't know what the numbers are, let's say it's a few hundred kids who are being withheld from going into school. Statistics tell us that some of those kids are going to be queer. And when you think about the fact that they are going to grow up 
And that's going to be their first memory of what it means to be queer. They're going to be told, I can't go to school and learn about this. And of course they've learned about it because it's all over the news and they're being, they're not being allowed into school. And, and when I think about those children and when I think about what harm is going to be done to them by this experience, I despair. And when you extrapolate that experience out into what it means for all those children around the world who are experiencing something similar, who are being raised in this culture of hatred, it's just saddening and infuriating. And for that reason, this whole debate around uh, in, an inclusive education, it is the very reason that the children need to be taught about, about different families is for their own well-being. The best argument for teaching children tolerance is for their own protection, because it means that if they're gonna grow up queer, they're not gonna grow up necessarily hating themselves. And if they have siblings or aunties and uncles, that they can better understand what it means to be from that sort of family. One of my close relatives uh, has a child who is a primary age, and that relative really struggles with talking to the child about my relationship with Matthew. And the reason is not because they have any homophobic feelings, but because they're worried about that child being bullied at school if they were to mention it. Whereas if they, if they existed in a classroom where they know that it's normal, then that wouldn't be a concern. So for me, it's about child protection, regardless of whether, whether they are going to be LGBT kids or not. What is the reason? And I guess this is the heart of it. Why do people think that by hearing about gay people, they're indoctrinating other people to be gay? Where does that thought come from? And how do we diminish that? The starting point is that those people believe that being gay is a choice. And fundamentally, that misunderstands the position. So if somebody thinks that being gay is a choice, then engaging with them meaningfully is going to be really hard. But if you can ask them to suspend that, even if you say, okay, look, you believe that being gay is a choice. I can't tell you otherwise, but work with me for a second. Let's assume that it isn't a choice just for a minute. Now, if we make that assumption and if we proceed on that basis, then can we agree that to force feed a child hatred and self-loathing does nothing good for them? And so that's the problem. As soon as you can get somebody to agree it's not a choice, there's a fair and reasonable argument to be had. It's that bit that I think really is the crux of where you go wrong in a debate. I tell you what, if I ever get into any trouble, the first person that I'm going to call to represent me is, is Mustang. <laughs> so hypothetically speaking, if yeah. I had done it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if you're gay, but you're not out and you're young and you're Muslim, what is your advice? Because we'll have a lot of listeners in all sorts of different places all over the world. And I'm sure both your book and this chat is going to help immensely. But what's your advice on how to deal with that? So I think regardless of whether you are Muslim and queer or just struggling with your identity, there are a couple of things I would say. I went to the gym recently and one of my, um, the, the guy who's kind of runs the classes, he put this bar in front of me and said, oh, lift, lift that. And I was like, no, 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 it's too heavy. It's too heavy. I can't lift it. And he was like, no, no, have a go. And I was like, no, I just can't. And he said, Mosin, you can't yet. And the point there is that sometimes things are really heavy, that you're dealing with things that feel like you cannot lift them. But that doesn't mean they always will be. And as you get older and as you grow and as you become wiser and more in tune with who you are, that burden will become lighter. So that's the first thing I would say. And then similarly, you don't have to lift on your own. In fact, I think it's really important that you don't. There are so many wonderful human beings on the planet that are ready, willing and able to help you with your struggle. And I think finding them is the only thing that you have to do. A gay and a non-gay. I wanted to chat about your experience at uni, actually, although it might be an inappropriate question. <laughs> but one of the things okay. I was fascinated by was I had no idea how clean 
um, Muslim men's bottoms are. And I'm amazed because Dan and I have had conversations about douching a lot. And Dan's like, no, I don't get it. Why would I go near that? But in your culture, it's completely like it's normal to just constantly make sure that that area is ready to go. So I'm loving that. Well, actually, I mean, it happens in Italy as well, right? You have a bidet. And yeah, it was... I've not been asked about this before. Oh, well, I apologize. I apologize. <laughs> no, 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 don't apologize. I mean, I think I think we need, you know, I think it's important. We should we should have these ass taps in in uh, British toilets. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I just don't think that Lou Roll does the job, frankly. No, I, I agree. Uh, you know, you go anywhere in the Middle East and there are bidets and in Italy that people have them. Yeah. Normalized douching. Yeah. I mean, I think douching slightly different. But <laughs> I don't want to go down that path with you, but I think it's pretty different. Have you not been anywhere Eastern? Honestly, no, I haven't. I have seen bidets like in places. And when I was younger, I always looked at them like, what's that for? Like no one ever explained that to me. It's only as I've become gay that I've sort of realized the benefits. <laughs> a focal point. A focal point for my whole life. <laughs> it's really yeah, define yeah. who I am. That's a real window into you there, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry. Well, I thought I'd save that question for the end. Okay, well, A Dutiful Boy, A Memoir of a Gay Muslim's Journey to Acceptance is out now. Thank you so much for being on A Gay and a Non-Gay today. Thank you for having me. And I'm going to keep your number on speed dial whenever I get it. <laughs> If I get into any trouble. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye. Take care. Find us on your socials at Gay Non Gay. Listen at gaynongay.com or just search Non Gay at your fave pod taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at caskers.com we make this experience easy caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code welcome 10 for ten dollars off your first purchase get ten dollars off your first purchase with code welcome 10 at caskers.com